Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ plus sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm the vice president of Team DC, and I've played and loved sports my whole life. I've played with Team DC member clubs, the DC Furies Women's Rugby Club, and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC, and I'm a diehard sports fan. I've played with many of the Team DC member clubs, including the DC Gay Flag Football League, Kara Bowling, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, and the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. I'm also a member of the DC Different Drummers, and I do a little bit of drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Laura and Gabe here. It's April 12th and you are listening to season two, episode three of Under the Bleachers. On this podcast, we take turns and this week it's Gabe's turn to choose our topics. For our discussion of all things queer, he chose gay cartoon characters. For our conversation on all things sports, we're talking about baseball's opening day. And for our topic at the intersection of sports and queer, soccer fans behaving badly. After that, we're going to share our interview with the United States' oldest LGBTQ newspaper, The Washington Blade. First, a quick update on Team DC. Team DC and its member clubs continue to partner with Nelly's Sports Bar for the Heroes for Heroes campaign, providing free meals to DC's frontline workers. This week, we'll be delivering meals to the Community of Hope Family Clinic and the staff at the Sports and Entertainment Vaccine Delivery Site. A big shout out to all of the sponsors of this week's meals, including Team DC, DC Gay Basketball League, Adventuring, and Stonewall Kickball teams, the Secret Servicers, the Blue Ballers, the Mounties, the Scorgies, and the Swallows. For a starting donation of just $50, you or your organization can help sponsor one of these meals. If you're interested, please contact Brent Miner at brent at teamdc.org. As COVID restrictions start to ease, member clubs are beginning to increase some activities. Be sure to follow Team DC and its member clubs on social media for updates. Find Team DC on Facebook at Team DC LGBT and on Twitter and Instagram at Team DC. Gabe and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com and all of your favorite podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast to help us out. And while you're at it, tell your friends to subscribe to Under the Bleachers for all of the latest news at the intersection of sports and queer. Now, here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's trip under the bleachers. Okay, let's start off with my queer topic. So, Jinkies, last February, HBO Max announced that they're producing an adult animated prequel series about Velma Dinkley, the famed brainiac, mystery solver, and fashion icon. Velma will delve deep in the life of, well, Velma, before she joins the Scooby gang and will star Mindy Kaling. Fans online are once again asking the question, is Velma a lesbian? Can cartoon characters have a sexuality? Should we care? Ellen recently had a segment on her show where she joked that of course Velma's a lesbian and named a few other cartoon characters who are LGBT. The Simpsons gave us Patty Bouvier, Waylon Smithers, and Dewey Largo. Arthur and his pals attended his teacher, Mr. Rapper's gay wedding, and Rick and Morty creators confirmed that Rick Sanchez is pansexual. Nickelodeon also tweeted a picture of SpongeBob on National Coming Out Day. So what will we learn about Velma? All right. Any thoughts, Laura? What do you think about cartoon characters and their sexuality? <laughs> uh, all right. So I don't watch a ton of like the quote, undo- quote unquote, adult cartoons. So I don't really know who a lot of the these characters are. But I first of all, I have a question. This new Scooby-Doo, is Mindy Kaling the voice or is this a live action Scooby-Doo? It's cartoons. She'll do the voice. Oh, okay. Them. All right. I mean, that's cool. I also think a live action could be fun. But anyway, um, although now that I mentioned that, I remember I just had this weird flashback of that weird guy from the Scream movies in the live action uh, video, and that was not good. (laughs) Yeah, what's his face? Um, Freddie Prince. Yeah, no, I'm thinking of the other guy, the goofier guy. Um, Oh, the one who plays... uh... Who's like one of the killers in Scream. He's like in the the live action Scooby-Doo. I got to look this up. But anyway, so I have a bunch of thoughts. One, um, you asked like, can cartoon characters have sexuality? The answer is, of course they can. Like, 
if it's a, you know, if it's a character, it can have all kinds of character traits. Um, should we care? I don't know. It depends, right? Like to the extent you care about the representation of any character in anything that you watch, you should care equally about cartoon characters. I mean, this whole idea, I think people say like, if cartoons are for kids then they shouldn't have sexuality and that's bullshit. Like if it's an adult character, kids interact with adults and those adults have, you know, romantic lives sexual lives whatever i mean i'm not suggesting we should start having like raging sex scenes in kids (laughs) but you know characters can have sexuality of course so all of that is silly um as for velma herself you know there's this one thing i think you know there tends to be this notion that if a woman is single she must be a closeted lesbian and let's just you know point out how stupid that is right like (laughs) you know straight women stay single for a number of reasons all the time a lot of straight women or asexual women don't choose not to have partner romantic partners that you know it doesn't necessarily suggest that they're a lesbian so this whole idea that just because Velma wasn't hot for Fred the way that the uh, Daphne was means that she must be a lesbian is crazy. First of all, maybe Velma just wants to be single. Second of all, maybe not everybody is hot for the jock, right? Like maybe Velma is more interested in another type of guy. I don't know. <laughs> um, but all of that having been said, like, sure, I always got a little bit of a lesbian vibe from Velma because she's real suspicious of everybody and she's <laughs> and snarky and all of those things make me think of queer women. Uh, so, yeah, no, I do think maybe Velma could uh, be on the spectrum, whatever. Uh, all of that having been said, I don't know who any of the rest of these people you talked about are, so I cannot comment on Patty Bouvier or Mr. Okay. Rapper. <laughs> Patty Bouvier, that's uh, Marge Simpson's uh, twin sister. Okay. Yeah, the ones that were making. So yeah, she came out as a lesbian. Mr. Smithers is Mr. Burns' like sidekick. And, yeah, he came out as gay, finally. Uh, Mr. Rapper, and that was a big one for like PB, because Arthur's a PBS kids show. I grew up with Arthur back in the day. And um, there was like states that weren't showing this episode because the kids go to a gay wedding. And it was like a brief 10 second, oh, it's a gay wedding. But uh, yeah, I think it was like the state of Alabama was just like their PBS affiliates are just banning the entire episode and all this craziness. I mean, Um, that does not surprise me, but. I mean, but I mean, it's interesting to see like we're going back to these characters that traditionally like they're, you know, kids shows and stuff like that, but. You know, we're created like Scooby Doo was created in the '60s and '70s when they became kind of famous, and now it's like we're getting the backstories, and people have a little bit more creative liberty because it's a different time. So it's like, yeah, for sure. Get? And and also like if this show is gonna focus on Velma, maybe we'll finally get to learn a little bit more about Velma, um, and maybe you will get an insight into <laughs> what her sexual preferences are. Maybe we'll find out that she's really into nerdy dudes and that's, and there was never any nerdy guys for her to get hot for on Scooby-Doo. I don't know. Hopefully hopefully we'll find out that she's a really cool queer chick, but you know, I'll be okay with Velma if she likes boys, you know, I don't, I don't judge. Um, And so like, I was reading some of these online forums and stuff like that. It's a big debate. So I'm going to ask you a couple, uh, not, not so much character cartoon characters, but different characters. Let's see what you think. Uh, okay. okay, so Bert and Ernie. Yeah. Okay, they're gay. They're gay, right? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, they they've like been together for yeah. years. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Pretty sure. <laughs> um, Statler and Waldorf. I I never got that. I like I think they're like I think like both of their wives died, and they're cranky old men who just like are best friends. But they're like the biggest shade queens. Like yeah, sitting in a balcony. Okay, but you don't think that straight guys can be judgy? I mean, have you ever listened to straight guys talk about a group of women across the bar? True. But have you seen Statler's wife, which is almost is Waldorf like in drag? I have I do not recall that at all. Yeah. There's <laughs> I'll post I'll post some pictures in the in our Facebook. But yeah, it's, right. it's, it's very it's, interesting where it's like, okay. this is my wife. And it's Got basically it. Waldorf and drag. <laughs> okay. All right. Peppermint Patty. She's famous. 
So yes, but I have to say, <laughs> but like, again, this one bugs me a little bit because it's like very similar to the Velma thing where I think that to some extent people are just like, when there's a girl who's not interested in the main male character, they're like, what's wrong with her? She must be gay. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. But I, I, I definitely identify with Peppermint Patty. I do think Peppermint Patty is a, uh, is 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 a very very much a a, a lady lover <laughs> what about bugs bunny i don't know anything about bugs bunny i think he's just queer or he just likes to do drag like i don't think he's oh i remember know, those drag things. things yeah he i didn't get drag and stuff. i don't know i don't know i got no feelings on bugs bunny um okay he man totally gay muscly man in a harness that uses he gets his powers from playing with his sword totally gay come on <laughs> Okay. I don't think I paid that much attention to He-Man. <laughs> uh, what about Timon and Pumbaa? I don't know. I think that's more of a buddy vibe than anything else. But, I mean... I mean, Timon did, you know, dress and drag and do the hula. That was his way of, like, creating a distraction. Okay, but, like, that doesn't mean Pumbaa has to be gay, right? Like, so this is what I don't get. Like, for some of these, it kind of feels like there's no, like, room for just, like, guys to be friends. Like, why do, like, Bert and Ernie sleep in the same bed, right? Like, they're definitely gay. But, like, Statler and Waldorf (laughs) or, like, I'm not as convinced about Timon and Pumbaa or Statler and Waldorf just because they're buddies. I mean... Like Ren and Stimpy sleep together. They're gay. Bert and Ernie sleep together. Yeah, They're Ren gay, and Stimpy. Right? Like, but yeah, I don't know. I look, we have to have space in our minds to accept that some women who aren't outwardly chasing after the lead leading man are not doesn't mean they're all lesbians. And not every twosome of male characters who like to hang out and joke around together are gay because they like each other more than other people. They can just be best buds like Owen Wilson and uh, that dark haired guy that he's in all the movies with. Okay. But uh, according to comedian Matteo Lane, and I totally agree with this, every Disney villain is gay. Well, I believe that because people at at Disney were just raging homophobes. And so they used gay tropes to make their villains seem like villains, like for sure. Um, like ever, I mean, Jafar Harry, is uh... Jafar is one of the gayest. <laughs> like, come on. <laughs> and also, Scar is the same way for sure. Scar is pretty gay. Yeah, I mean, well, have you have you seen? Um, there's a documentary called "Do I Sound Gay?" No. New York Times did a whole story about it, and then did a documentary about it, and they talk about like how villains have this like gay English sound and that's how you know that it's a villain. And I was yeah. like, yeah, all the Disney characters. But it's also this like funny thing where somebody in like the seventies decided that all gay men spoke with like a lisp and like really like highly developed vocabulary. Like it was just really strange. Like all of a sudden, this is how you knew a character was gay. He used really big words and had a lisp and maybe reminded me a little bit of Clark Gable. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I totally agree. Jafar, Scar, gay. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent, hands down. Okay, let's see. Let's see what happens with Velma. I, I hopefully there'll be a little story arc there, but. I, I mean, mean, if the whole thing is based just on her i sure hope she has a love interest at some point i mean everybody <laughs> there's somebody out there for everybody so that's true i hope we get to see who velma is hot for <laughs> all right gabe enough of about cartoons tell me about sports all right all right so moving out of my sports topic it's a flashback topic but baseball is back 26 of the 30 teams took the field on April 1st for hopefully the start of a regular 162-game series with a little flexibility. Local fans had to wait as the Orioles were rained out and the Nats postponed their series with some loser team from New York after a COVID scare. Highlights included Tigers' Miguel Cabrera's 40 or 488th homer, but this time it was a snowstorm, which was awesome if you see the highlights, and the Dodgers' Cody Bellinger and Justin Turner turning a two-run homer into an out because of a little snafu. Um, 
Also, uh, let's break into the new rules that are happening in the 2021 season. Uh, Laura, you're going to be happy and you'll rejoice that after a year of experimentation, the Nationals League says sashay away to the designated hitter, and pitchers are hitting the cages for batting practice. The designated hitter rule will still be applied in the American League, and team rosters will remain at 26 players and bump up to 28 in September, with no limits on the numbers of pitchers. Clubs are no longer limited to playing against teams in their own region, which is awesome, and they can bring five taxi squad players on road trips. Now, fans' attendance will vary as each stadium must comply with local health regulations. Opening day crowds ranged from 4,500 fans in Fenway Park to a sold-out 38,238 fan-packed Globe Life Field where the Texas Rangers hosted the Toronto Blue Jays. The All-Star Game remains set for July 13th but will not be played in Atlanta. Hopefully they will move to a state that doesn't disenfranchise their voters. The playoffs were expanded last year from 10 to 16 teams, but there has been no agreement reached by the players' union in the leagues this year. This is going to be another fluid season as things will change based on COVID, but I'm glad to see we're finally getting somewhere back to normal. All right, Laura, so what do you think about baseball this year? Do you have any highlights, anything you're looking forward to? Can yeah, the Nats finally celebrate their 2019 win? Oh, please. The Nats have had two years to celebrate that, that nonsense. Last year doesn't count. Uh, does not count. <laughs> yeah, sure. Let them celebrate. I'm all for it. Everybody who wins a World Series should celebrate. Obviously, what I'm looking forward to the most is what the Mets have to do. Um, You know, I mean, the Mets have new owners. They finally went out and spent some money in the offseason. So it's an exciting time to be a Mets fan to see what this new team will do. Of course, they started the season in true Mets fashion with Jacob deGrom on the mound, proving once again that he's the best pitcher in baseball and that his team is the worst and he can't get any wins because (laughs) he gets no run support whatsoever. Uh, But yeah, no, I'm obviously really excited for baseball. I'm super excited that the National League didn't uh, fall into that dumb trap and keep the designated hitter rule because that's stupid. I am very scared about the idea of 38,000 people packed into a baseball stadium in Texas. Uh, I, I don't know, Texas, come on, man. Like this (laughs) pandemic is no joke and 38,000 people is a lot. Um, But I do think that some of the restrictions, like even here um, in DC, where I think they're allowing, is it 10,000 fans? That's I mean, they could let more people in, I think. It, that place is huge. And, But, hey, you know what? Better safe than sorry. Better getting the games played than not. I definitely hope they go back to the regular playoff structure. I thought that whole every team gets to be in the playoffs thing was pretty stupid last year. Like, that's one of the best things about baseball, right, is, like, you play so many games in the season and – you got to win your division if you want to play, you know, in the playoffs. Yeah. yeah, I hope that they go back to the regular playoff structure. Otherwise, I am just really excited to watch baseball again. Yeah, like I'm excited for the Nats. We had a lot of uh, a lot of injuries, a lot of players swapping, and you know we lost some really good players. Um, so hopefully, we do something. I mean, you never know. 2019. The Nats were basically sucking the entire year and then just pulled it together. Well, um, yeah. I mean, they benefited a lot from the fact that they were the only team in that division that was remotely playing baseball. I, I, the NL East is going to be good, I think, for the first time in a while, um, which will be interesting to see like some more competitive games. So, yeah, I'm super excited to see baseball back. Um, I cannot wait. I have tickets for the Nats game next weekend. So it'll be my first in-person baseball game in so long. This is the longest I've gone since I've been an adult from seeing a baseball game in person. And it's definitely making me crazy. So yeah, I will uh, be at in the stands next weekend cheering and happy to be seeing baseball in person. Yeah, what did you think about the All-Star game moving? I think that's the right move. Um, You know, like we've talked about this, you know, corporations, first of all, are not people, Republicans, like as much as you want them to be people when it's convenient for you, they are not people. However, you know, they are actors in our economy and dollars talk. And if you want to stand up for 
principles that you believe in, one of the best ways to do it is making smart choices about where you put your money. And so businesses, they know that consumers are going to use their dollars to voice their opinions. And so it's important. So it's smart for companies and businesses like Major League Baseball to respond to that by um, making decisions that please their customer base. Also, I like to believe that the people who actually are in charge at Major League Baseball also have their own personal principles that they're standing up for. And they have every right to do that. So, you know, I love how Republicans in all of their um, glory like to stand up and scream about how corporations can give unlimited money and their money is political speech when it benefits them because they're bringing in huge amounts of PAC dollars. But and they should, you know, be persuasive in politics then. But then when Major League Baseball wants to take a stand on a very important political issue, all of a sudden, you know, they should be shutting the hell up and staying out of baseball and staying out of politics because it has nothing to do with baseball. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not how the world works. Um, That having been said, I don't know what state doesn't disenfranchise voters. (laughs) Everybody seems to disenfranchise voters in one way or another these days. We need voter reform. That is the most important thing in this country. That is currently the biggest threat facing our democracy. We should all be doing everything we can to get um, to fight against all these voter suppression laws that are passing at the state level and to fight as hard as as hard as hard as we can to get the um, Congress on the federal level to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and to pass the For the People Act. Um, And yeah, that is a really long answer to your question, but (laughs) I am fully in support of the decision. There are plenty of states that do a much better job than Georgia, so there are lots of options. I know that Chicago has been lobbying to get the game, and that would be a fair choice. Um, New York is a lovely place in July as well. (laughs) There are some lovely stadiums out in California that like their people to vote. So, you know, yeah, let's, uh, (laughs) let's continue to um, encourage corporations and other business entities to make socially and politically responsible decisions about where they spend their money and where they put their business and allow the local neighborhoods to benefit from their business. Let them make, um, make principled choices about that. And also let's continue to encourage consumers to use their dollars as their voice and, you know, boycott companies that do things they don't like and spend their money on companies that do things that they do like, because that'll make even more companies start doing the right thing. So yes, I'm all for it. Totally agree. And that kind of goes into my next topic, but uh, yeah, just using sports to do something beyond sports and make an impact in society. Uh, So for my topic of the intersection of sports and queer, we're headed south for a little football and a problem that has plagued uh, three for years. As we talked about in the last episode, the Mexican national football team, or La La Selección's under-23 team, has secured their right to participate in the Olympics in Tokyo this summer. But their dream was almost crushed by a homophobic chant that has become a sad tradition in sports. And FIFA is finally taking more action. Okay, so during most goal kicks, fans yell in unison a word that roughly translates to male prostitute as an insult to show weakness to their opponent's goalkeepers. No one exactly knows how the chant came about. It started with the lower leagues and finally made its way up to the national team. But El Tri was handed 11 disciplinary actions at the 2018 World Cup. 51 disciplinary actions for homophobic chants were issued throughout that tournament. In the past, FIFA has fined the, na- the national team a measly $10,000. The team once supported the chant as a joke, but has changed its position. In 2019, they launched a video where soccer stars like Javier Hernandez, a.k.a. Chicharito, and Guillermo Ochoa pleaded with fans to stop using the chant. The under-23 team is working to eradicate the chant on their way to Tokyo. FIFA opened an investigation on fan antics after a March 18th qualifier and threatened a fine and loss of points, which would have knocked Mexico out of the top spot and qualifying for the Olympics. 
We as fans need to call out these homophobic and machismo actions in sports culture. Fines may not have worked, but ending matches might. Okay, Laura, so this is kind of like a hot topic. It's been going on for a while, but what do you think is the team's responsibility uh, to handle their fans and the sports culture? I mean, I, you know, I do think this is tough because I think, you know, we have to start with requiring teams first to take responsibility for their players, their, you know, their leadership and, honestly, FIFA has its own problems, right? So like, it's a little crazy to start trying to hold teams responsible for their fans when I'm not sure the organization itself has its shit together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that being said, like, I definitely think it is the job of the team to foster a culture in their own stadium that they want, right? So they, they need to take whatever actions they can to make sure that um, if they don't want to be viewed as a homophobic organization, they don't want to have their stadium be a place that people come and chant homophobic chants, right? Like you should definitely have rules in your own stadium. People should be kicked out if they are not following the rules that you want them to follow. But I don't know how you control, how you hold a team responsible for fans actions when they're not at their home stadium like now you're talking now it's just like so many steps down the road like I definitely think it's right that the team should be expected to put out these videos to encourage their fans to cut shit out to try to send the message to their fans that this is they don't want this they don't like this they're not you know, encouraged by this, this doesn't cheer them on. But when you're in a neutral venue and you don't know who the people are in the stands, I, I don't know that, that to me, it's a little bit too far afield to start blaming the team. Cause I'm not even sure you can be positive that these aren't just assholes that are not fans of that team that are trying to start trouble or trying somewhere. to start trouble. I, I just, I don't know. So, you know, it's a, uh, that's a little bit weird for me, but I definitely putting aside the question of like, how do you actually control fans in a neutral space? I definitely agree that this team needs to be out there loudly sending the message every chance they get that they do not like this chant. They do not want to hear this chant. They do not. They ask their fans to stop doing this chant. Like they should be very vocal and loud about that every chance that they get and in their own stadium and at their own events that they can control. I think that they should set rules and policies and throw people out if they don't follow them. Well, they've talked about that. They were there, you know, the home stadiums of the Stelio Azteca, they, you know, if they hear anyone starting the chant or doing it, They'll kick them out. But even the refs now are just stopping the game and saying, we're done. That's it. We're done. You know, first time, a warning. Second time, we're done. And I remember uh, when they, there was an exhibition match when um, the Mexican national team played against the American team, uh, the, the, the men's national uh, team in San Antonio. And, yeah, the, my friend started laughing. She said, before we even entered, there were signs everywhere and on the jumbo screen saying, Please do not chant this certain chant um, yeah. or the game will end. And I think that's what's starting to get more fans, you know, when it, with this, uh, this tournament that was going on for the World Cup qualifiers. They basically said, you know, if you do this again, we're going to dock the team points, three points. That would have done like a, a zero one loss or something and they would be done. Yeah. I mean, certainly that so, uh, will be, should be more impactful than a lousy $10,000 fine that to this team is nothing like it's and nothing. To its fans. It's even less meaningful. So um, yeah, I mean, if they're trying to be more impactful, I do think that probably will be more impactful. Um, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing is making people not want to use the chant. So getting the message out about why this is harmful, why this is bad, and changing the culture so that it goes away on its own, right? Like, it's one thing, use negative reinforcement to try to build a better um, atmosphere for people because you have no other way to do it, fine, in the short term. But in the long term, our goal needs to be 
to build a culture where people understand intuitively why there's something wrong with this chant, why it's harmful to people, and they should not want to use it, right? Like that should be yeah. a long-term goal. <laughs> to stop being a shitty fan. Yeah, and to sh- stop being shitty people. I mean, honestly, like we all need to um, keep trying to build a better world. That's what we're that's what we're trying to do, right? And um, at the end of the day, I do think, unfortunately, that for something like this, you know, I'm not um, super, fam- I'm not familiar with this specific thing, but I understand the concept of something that has been done for years and years and years, and people do it like as a habit. They don't ever stop to think necessarily what do these words mean? Why are we using these words right now? It's more that like, it's the group mentality of like, oh, it's fun for us all to be doing and saying the same thing at once. It's like this positive crowd energy, right? We all feel, we get these positive feelings from doing this thing all together to encourage our team. But, you know, it started six generations ago and most of these people probably have never stopped to think about what they're actually saying or what it means or why it's applicable there. And so that's what we need to be focusing on is educating people about how important it is to think about the language that they use and why they're using it and make better choices. So, you know, really what needs to happen maybe is like some really popular Mexican soccer players and Mexican soccer fans need to come up with a new chant to do during that time and get the word out and get pe- give people a better alternative and get people excited about cheering on their team without being homophobes at the same time. <laughs> no, I totally agree. And I, I think they're working on it, especially with these younger, these younger teams, like the, the under 23 team is they're definitely making this the top priority. Of course, winning a gold medal, but also trying to do something and getting rid of this chant and saying, Hey, to their fans, if you're going to be doing this, don't bother watching us. Like, we're not yeah. playing for you, which is awesome. Absolutely. All right. That's this week's Under the Bleachers roundup of things queer, things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to share our interview with America's LGBT news source, The Washington Blade. All right. Today we are talking to Kevin Naff. He is the editor and co-owner of The Washington Blade. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. It's good to have you here. Um, just let's just dive right in for anybody who is living on a rock and might not know what is the blade and what is your general your overall mission. Sure, uh, the Washington Blade is the nation's oldest uh, LGBTQ newspaper. We were founded uh, just a couple of months after the Stonewall riots in 1969, and um, I would say our mission is to. Uh, write the first draft of the LGBTQ community's history. Um, I think it's important that we tell our own stories through our own lens. And so over the years, that mission has grown from um, a very small local publication to um, a lot of national and and political news and to today, uh, a lot of international news. Very cool. And can you give us a kind of a quick summary of some of the major events, I guess, you all have covered? I mean, 50 years is a lot of history. Uh, well, <laughs> it is a lot of history. We've, we've covered every major story, you know, in the community, locally, nationally, and beyond for fi- almost 52 years now. Um, so, you know, in the very early days, um, there were a lot of stories about police harassment. Um, uh, the, the police, um, the community has a much better, of course, relationship with the police today, but it wasn't always that way. And um, if your car was found parked in DuPont Circle too often or, or for too long, um, police would harass you, uh, take down your license plate number. So the Blade published a lot of, you know, warnings to uh, the community about police harassment. Um, of course, you know, in the 80s, uh, AIDS was uh, the dominant topic, um, not just uh, covering the disease itself and, um, and, and the search for treatments, but um, obituaries became uh, a huge part of the paper, unfortunately. Um, uh, and then, you know, as we, as we, as the paper uh, went on, um, uh, the mission grew um, to, to national politics as our issues started to uh, gain traction and, and get interest, um, you know, in the 90s with the Clinton administration. 
Um, you started to see for the first time openly gay appointees in the federal government. So we covered all of that. Uh, the Matthew Shepard murder was a big, a big story, of course. And um, our uh, reporter, Lucha Barrow, flew out to Wyoming to cover the trial. Um, we also traveled to all of the international AIDS conferences um, that happened all over the world during the 80s and 90s to cover those in person. Uh, and then, you know, more recently, all of the, you know, we always, we always, we always go to the um, national political conventions. So we've been to all of those. And then, of course, more recently, um, you know, the marriage equality fight, don't ask, don't tell repeal, uh, all of the big stories of, of the last decade or so. We have been uh, right at the right on the front lines of, of all those yeah. stories. Uh, yeah, well, I guess the last five decades, you've been telling the stories of LGBTQ people. And obviously, we're so grateful to have the blade um, to do that. But tell us a little bit about your content that goes that's maybe on the little lighter side, um, other than uh, news and politics. What else do you guys cover? Sure, we, uh, we, we do publish a um, feature section every week. So um, in fact, just today, you know, Mary Wilson um, from the Supremes passed away unexpectedly uh, yesterday. And we just did a big interview with her a couple of years ago. So we uh, resurrected that interview so people could, uh, you know, read her thoughts, uh, her recent thoughts. This was just a couple of years ago that we talked to her um, about, um, you know, not just the, the typical stuff about, you know, Diana Ross and, the, and Motown, but um, she was a, a guest judge on RuPaul's uh, Drag Race. Um, and she had, you know, shared her thoughts on her gay fans and so forth. So, um, so it, it, it's nice to have uh, a repository of those kinds of interviews. So we do do a lot of celebrity interviews. Um, we, of course, cover the local art scene. Um, of course, that's been a challenge uh, in the past year, uh, but, um, but we normally uh, have a very robust local arts section. All right. And I know that um, from reading a little bit about the history of The Blade that you became a co-owner of The Blade after its original parent company um, closed down in 2009. Tell us a little bit about what that time was like and what you know, what kind of was going through your head when you thought that the blade might come to an end? Oh, it was horrible, <laughs> as you can imagine. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, so that was November of 2009, and I'm an early bird, so I'm, I was always the first one in the office, and I got to the office that morning, it was a Monday morning, and the two of the executives from uh, the company in Atlanta were waiting in the conference room, which I thought was probably not a good sign. Uh, and I walked in and they told me the news that they had filed chapter seven. It was a liquidation and we had three hours to get our personal oh, stuff wow. to leave. Um, so I went to my office and I shut the door and I called my husband and I started crying. And he was like, you can't cry. You're the boss. Stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> so I pulled it together and um, the staff eventually, everyone eventually showed up and got the news and um, we decided to regroup the next day and all meet at a coffee shop uh, to figure out, you know, what to do next. Had a bunch of wine that night and um, woke up with a hangover and went to my computer and there were 400 messages from all over the world, from all kinds of people. I was completely shocked. Uh, I had no idea, you know. I think when you work in the media, you get used to being um, demonized, you know, the enemy of the people, and it's always our fault. Um, but it's kind of the thing, the, the thing with the blade, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like the thing you love to hate. And I think when people realized it could be gone, you know, they freaked out and then everybody wanted to save it. So that was really gratifying. Um, but I had emails from as far away as Turkey and France and England, people wanting to donate money. And, you know, locally, it was like everybody from real estate developers offering us free office space to college kids offering to deliver the papers for free. And every writer and photographer and designer wanted to help for free. And so I was just completely, you know, blown away by the the support of the community. And so that changed my mind. And I thought, OK, we better, um, you know. We better uh, take advantage of all of this while while we can. And I went to uh, the coffee shop meeting, and um, the whole staff came back, and we decided that uh, we did not want to miss a week of publishing, so we were going to put something out on Friday. 
uh, even though we had nothing, we had and, and we had no brand name, we couldn't use the blade. So we had to come up with a new name and one that you know had a URL that we could buy and uh, you know get all of that you know get a a name a a, a logo a website um, a printer and, and like everything together uh, in three days and uh, it was modest but we we pulled it off um, and a couple of days uh, after this all went down I um, went on the Kojo Namdi show. And um, he had me on for that for an hour to just talk about you know the blade and what had happened and everything. And a um, caller uh, that he put on the air got on and she uh, said that she was a DC school public school teacher, and she started crying, and she said, "Kevin, if I had a million dollars, I would give it to you and your staff." And then I wanted to cry, but there's no crying in newspapers, so I didn't. But uh, but she said, I, my students bring the blade, I see them, my, my gay students bring the blade into class and it is a lifeline for them. So, you know, between all of that support and, and then that story, it was like, okay, we got to keep it going. So, yeah, so we published under another name for a couple of months, I think it was April of 2010. We, uh, my business partners and I uh, went through the bankruptcy court and purchased the assets of the blade. Uh, which is pretty much the brand name and the archive, and uh, and then we and then we uh, relaunched the the blade brand in, in April. Awesome! Yeah, we're glad that, you that's did. A really, yeah, that's a great history <laughs> story. <laughs> um, so do you have any interviews or any issues that kind of stick out from the years that you've worked at the blade that kind of hit close to home? Oh my gosh! Um, lots of interviews and stories i mean that you know have resonated i interviewed hillary clinton uh during her primary fight with um uh, barack obama where they were like just you know fighting it out to the very end of the primary process and of course locally you know maryland virginia dc our primaries never mattered because they were late in like june and you know we we our votes never mattered before and then all of a sudden you know it was going down to the wire and our votes actually mattered so so hillary gave us an interview and um uh and and it was uh it, it was a good interview she's very tough um and her strategy seems to be that she knows how much time you have and so you ask a question and she can talk literally about anything for half an hour so you have to really like interrupt her and cut her off and get her to <laughs> to switch gears and, and answer something else. So I took Laverne Cox to the um, uh, White House Correspondence Dinner a few years back. And uh, it was it was hilarious. Um, <laughs> she, we walked in together and uh, and she says to me, oh, wait a second, Kevin, Katie, Katie's trying to get my attention. I thought Katie was some friend of hers and it turned out to be Katie Couric. <laughs> and so Katie Couric walks up and says hi. And then three of us are there. And then Katie says, Hey, let me. Uh, I want to introduce you to my date. And she taps this guy on the shoulder, and he turns around, and it's Antonin Scalia. <laughs> so now I'm standing in this tight circle with Katie Couric, Laverne Cox, and Antonin Scalia, and it was like two months before the marriage ruling was coming out from the Supreme <laughs> Court. And I don't know. We talked about like the weather or something. And <laughs> they walked away, and I looked at Laverne, and I said, "We missed our chance. Like we should have." said something to convince him you know and she was like i know i felt the same way but i just went blank and all i could talk about was the weather i um, go out on a limb and say there's not very not anything you could have said <laughs> in Scalia right. that was going to change his mind on that right one, but. So, so that was fun um what do you think is and here we are in 2021 and what role do you think the blade and other lgbtq plus publications play in the modern world uh, I think I think we still play an important role, um, and if you watch, particularly um, at the national level, in terms of what we've done in the White House and really what Chris Johnson, our White House reporter, has achieved, is pretty remarkable. He's uh, he's just been a, a constant presence there for for years now, and um, more than a decade, um, and. You know, it, it's really important uh, to be in that room and to and to have a seat at that table, uh, because the mainstream media they're not going to ask our questions. Um, you know, unless it's something really big and obvious and easy, like with the marriage fight. You know, they, they everybody sort of could understand that. Um, but outside of that issue, uh, the mainstream media just don't pay attention to us. 
uh, even now. So um, I'll give you one example. Recently, um, uh, during the Trump administration, there was news out of Chechnya that the government there was cracking down on gay men and rounding up gay men and putting them in prison and torturing and even killing them. And these were credible, verified reports, news reports, and nobody said a word about it in, in Amer the American mainstream media. And luckily, Chris is in that room and was able to ask the White House press secretary. And that sparked other reporters who hadn't heard of it, didn't realize this was going on. So if, you know, if he hadn't been in the room, that question would have never been asked. Um, similarly, um, our international news editor, uh, Michael Lavers, has done really great work in covering uh, issues in Latin America and the Caribbean and uh, in particular around immigration. So, you know, um, a few years ago, I think it was during the um, 2018 midterms when Trump was trying to, you know, weaponize the so-called caravan of migrants that was invading from the, you know, border. Um, but what the mainstream media didn't cover was that there was an LGBT contingent of that group that was expelled from the so-called caravan. And it was about 300 or so um, gay and, and a lot of transgender folks who were fleeing very real violence and persecution. And um, they broke off into their own group and ended up in a lesbian run uh, shelter in Mexico. And we had a reporter embedded with them uh, telling their stories and, and um, making sure that you know they, their plight is not forgotten because we do have unique uh, issues and needs when it comes to immigration. So again, the mainstream media would never have covered that story, but we were embedded with, with that group. So um, uh, I think your question was, <laughs> what's our relevance? I think, uh, again, I, I go, for me, it just goes back to being in control of your own narrative, your own community story and, and history. And, you know, other people can come up behind us and then clean up our mistakes or add texture or add, you know, commentary. But there needs to be sort of this through line of this consistent presence that is that is dedicated to recording this history. Um, and, and, and in the case of the LGBTQ movement, that history has moved at lightning speed. So, um, so, you know, I'm grateful that we're that we're still here. And, and uh, I think there's a lot more work that uh, that lies ahead. Yeah, those are the stories that we need to hear because um we talked about it in our last season in one of our episodes with the Glad Media Awards and how you all won an award for your reporting on the trans uh, military ban and stories like that. Yes. Yeah. And again, you know, the mainstream media have forgotten pretty much about that story, about the, the fact that that Trump had had done that. And it was, um, you know, a blatant example of his administration rolling back the gains of the Obama years. And um, it's, you know, it's something that when, when the campaign, the 2016 campaign was happening, a lot of people would say to me, well, why do we need the gay press? Hillary's gonna win and she's gonna cement, you know, everything that Obama did and, you know, it's pretty much over. And nobody says that anymore. Uh, <laughs> We, I think we all realize after four years of, of that, you know, nightmare that, that the, 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 a lot of the gains that we made are fragile and can be rolled back. Uh, and so um, I don't get that question anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that was an important wake up call for a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's instrumental, of course, to have this contemporaneous record of, you know, the history. I also think it's it's important, equally important, the portions of your reporting that focus on the community, uh, gay athletes, gay artists, culture, TV shows, everything like that. You know, um, there's just yeah. so much more of the story to be told. And it's so great to have the Blade as a resource for all of that. Absolutely. We, uh, of course, are dedicated to covering the local community. And um, of course, you mentioned sports. We've always been uh, a big supporter of the sports community. And one of the reasons um, I think for that is that, you know, we try to shine a light on places where homophobia is still, uh, you know, not just tolerated, but sort of the rule. Uh, and, and whether that's religion or um, professional sports, collegiate sports, certainly uh, it remains a huge problem. Uh, and I think it was about 2012, we started an annual sports issue 
that fo really focused on local national um, uh, issues in, in amateur and professional sports. And um, we uh, worked with some really great guest editors. So we recruited athletes to uh, actually work with the staff on putting those issues together. So our first issue we worked with Brendan I. McDeho from the Baltimore Ravens who had just won the Super Bowl. And uh, so he's an ally and um, did an incredible job working with us on putting that together. We've worked with Megan Rapinoe as one of our guest editors and um, Hudson Taylor and a bunch of others. Uh, and, um, and those issues focus not just nationally, but, but also on the local scene, because of course, DC has an incredibly robust, um, sports community and we've, we've sponsored, uh, sports leagues in, in DC forever. Uh, so, um, I think, you know, it's again, important to, uh, shine a light and, and, uh, and also, um, you know, promote the good work that, that those organizations, organizations are doing and support them as best as we can. Well, Kevin, this has been awesome. I'm so glad that you were able to join us. Um, I really enjoyed chatting with you before we let you go, let everybody know where they can find the blade and where they should go if they want to support the blade. Oh, sure. Thanks. Uh, well, of course, um, WashingtonBlade.com is our main website. Um, we have a sister paper that we launched a few years ago out in Los Angeles called Los Angeles Blade. So you can find them as well. And, um, and if you want to support us, um, we appreciate that. And you can do that in a tax deductible way at bladefoundation.org. Great. Thanks again. It's been fun talking to you. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston for the design of our logo. Also, our music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and on all major podcast apps, including Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend who might enjoy listening. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC board members, Laura Frere and Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the host and participants of Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.